Hey, good morning. Uh, man, we are so glad that you guys are here today. This is week two of Collective Church. And uh, what's really crazy is last week was our launch. It was our first day ever. And so we were super nervous about it. But I woke up this morning more nervous about today because I was like, people will come to opening day, but the question is, will they come back? And so we are so thankful that you're here today. Last week, we gave a challenge to try five. We asked everybody here, hey, give Collective five weeks. And our thought is this, if you show up five times to Collective, if you hear who we are and hear our story and invest in the community of Frederick and in this church community, that after five weeks, you'll want this to be your church home. And so I know some of you are here because you did that and thank you for coming back again. That means a lot to us. Now, if this is your first week, we're gonna offer you the same challenge. We would love for you to come back for five weeks. And what's really cool right now is we're starting a brand new series called God for the Rest of Us, and it's five weeks long. And so if this is your first time, commit to coming through this series. And we truly do believe that as you get to know this church and the people that are a part of it uh, and the other people who are checking it out, that you will fall in love with Collective and you'll want Collective to be your church home. And so, yeah, we're just so pumped that you guys are back. Um, as you guys can tell, we're still trying to figure out how to do this every single Sunday. And so we appreciate uh, as we put out more chairs and more chairs and more chairs that you're patient with us. Uh, you know, what's really cool is we just, you know, we didn't really know what to expect. And so we're thankful that you're here and, and doing church with us. Uh, one thing that we're going to do every single week, and we talked about this last week, is that if you are a first-time guest and you fill out the connection card that's on your seat right now, what we are going to do is we're going to donate to an organization on your behalf. And so last week, we had about 75% of the people that came to Collective fill out one of those cards and turn it in. And what's really cool is that resulted in around $350 worth of school supplies for West Frederick Middle School. And so if you go out to the lobby and you see, <laughs> yeah, it's good. And guys, really, like the reason why we do that is because from week one, we wanted to know, and we wanted you guys to know that we're trying to invest in this community, and it's better when we do it together. And so if you saw that table full of school supplies, uh, that's going to Tracy Wedge today to be given to kids. It's like 180 notebooks, 80 binders, a ton of pencils, uh, and we're actually waiting on an Amazon shipment to kind of complete the order. And, um, and that's something we're going to do every single, every single Sunday is we're going to pick an organization, and if you are a first-time guest and you fill out a card, we're going to donate to that organization on your behalf. And so for the last quarter, so we did uh, school supplies on the first day. For this last quarter, uh, every time a new person fills out a connection card, we're going to donate to the Frederick Rescue Mission for their Christmas toy drive, which is great. We, we love the rescue mission. Um, we have multiple team members that have been a part of that in one way or another. And, and we sat down with our friend Mike and said, hey, like, what do you guys need this winter? And he explained that at around Christmas, they help families, uh, whether it's with food or just, just create good Christmases for their families. And so he asked us, hey, would you take us on in the fourth quarter uh, for Collective? And we said yes. And so if you are a first-time guest, fill out that card. And over the, over, this, over the next three months, we're going to collect all that money. And then we're going to go on a shopping spree for these kids so they can have a good Christmas in the way that their parents want them to have. Now, if you were a first-time guest last week, or maybe you checked out a preview service, we've got something else for you. So if you're a second-time guest, uh, instead of having you invest in the community with us, we actually have a gift for you. And so if you are a second-time guest, we'd love for you to fill out that card. There's a box on there, check off, second-time guest. And on your way out, stop by the, uh, the welcome table, which is where the pallet wall is. And we actually have a gift for you. It's, uh, you, you won't regret picking it up, I promise. Um, it's the most comfortable T-shirt you will ever wear in your life. Um, and it's just our way of saying thank you for coming back. 
And we know coming to church is hard. We know coming back is even tougher, especially when we ask you guys to try five and give us a few chances. And so if you're a first or second time guest, guest today, make sure to fill out those cards, drop them off at the welcome table. Uh, if you've been here beyond two, but you never got a t-shirt, stop by the table and grab one. Uh, we'd love for you guys to be wearing a, a cool collective t-shirt all around town. So do you ever wonder if God is for you? If God notices you? If God labels you the same way that others do? If God wants you to be a part of his church? Or do you ever wonder if God even wants you to believe? Over the next five weeks, we're going to be in a series called God for the Rest of Us. And we're going to talk about how God is for the outcast and the forgotten, the broken and the unbeliever, and people who have been hurt by the church. And while God is for so many more people, the reason why we picked these five topics is because over the last years, we've got to know this city and got to know people. More than anything else, these five things uh, were topics and ideas that people resonated with uh, in Frederick. And so when we asked them about church or about God, this, their responses were that they didn't know if, if they could show up because they were broken. Or they didn't know if they could show up because they felt like an outcast. Or they didn't know if they could show up because they had a bad church experience in the past. And so for the next five weeks, that's what we're going to talk about, is how God is for the rest of us. And we want you to know, kind of what we talked about last week, that God is for you. And because God is for you, so is collective. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So I grew up in the D.C. area, and so I'm a big Washington Redskins fan. Any Redskins fans out there? Got a few. That's good. I know, that was like a weird mix, guys. Um, ultimately, it's Redskins or Ravens. If you're anything else, this might not be the church for you. <laughs> I'm kidding. My wife is a Packers fan. Uh, side note, my, we have a daughter, and when they made the playoffs a few years ago, we bet whoever won the playoff game would get the daughter's fandom for the rest of her life, and the Packers smoked the Redskins. So top five mistake of my life. Uh, but I'm a huge Redskins fan. I, I remember in 92 watching the Super Bowl with my dad as we beat the Buffalo Bills. I remember going to the first game I'd ever gone to as a Sunday night game against the New York Giants. The dude behind me got so drunk, he spilled beer all over my back. as like a six-year-old. It was great. Uh, I loved it. In fact, one of the reasons why we start Collective at 1030 is because we're portable. And so our hope is to finish church, pack them, get home for the one o'clock kickoff. So I lived in Tennessee for six years. I didn't get to watch any Redskins game. I'm getting home by one o'clock so I can be there for that. So being a Redskins fan, uh, there's a lot of pain involved. Uh, another thing that's true with that, though, is that I have to, by law, despise the Cowboys, which is a huge problem because my best friend is a Cowboys fan. I'm not sure how that happened. Uh, some days I regret it more than others. Uh, in fact, we lived together for four years in college, and we had a rule that we couldn't watch games together. And so I remember my freshman year, <laughs> this, is, this, this could be sad to you guys that I remember this, uh, Cowboys-Redskins Monday night game, Cowboys were up 13 to nothing in the fourth quarter, and uh, Mark Brunel dropped two 50-yard touchdown passes to Santana Moss. And I could hear from the other room my roommate throwing things and, and destroying the room he lived in because we made sure that we, that we watched these games separately. And so for the first three years of college, we never watched these games together. But in the fall of my senior year, my roommate's dad actually gave us a call to tell us that his friend George Walker had three tickets to the upcoming Cowboys-Redskins game, and he wanted us to have two of them. And so immediately we said yes. We were, we were pumped. We were in Tennessee. We thought, drive to D.C. That's not very hard. But as we did a little bit more research, we realized that the game was in Dallas. Not only was it in Dallas, though, it was the last time the Redskins and Cowboys would ever play an old Cowboys stadium. 
it was Monday. The game was Sunday. And so we decided, hey, we can't make it. Like, there's no, how do we get down to Dallas? We're poor college kids. We can't make it. But after kind of going back and forth on Wednesday of that week, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, was like, you just need to buy, buy plane tickets and go. And so that's what we did. We packed up our bags. We flew out on a Saturday night, and we flew to Dallas to watch uh, this incredible game. And we got there. We thought we were riding in style, so we rented a Dodge Charger because we thought we'd be really cool. And we walk up to the counter like, hey, we're out of chargers. We got something better for you. And we're like, it's a Hummer, right? Like, it's going to be an Escalade. It's going to be awesome. It was a minivan. <laughs> and so we grabbed this minivan, and we rocked out the minivan, and we drove to our hotel and got ready for the next day when we could go to this game. So the next morning we woke up and we went over to this guy George's house and I knocked on the door and as soon as he opened the door, he realized that I was a Redskins fan. He threw out a few expletives and shut the door in my face. I knocked again and this time he opened it up and he started talking to my roommate and he goes, you didn't tell me this guy was a Redskins fan. And, you know, my friend Curtis, he responds back. He's like, hey, he's cool. He's not super obnoxious. Like, it'll be okay. And you could tell this guy, George, like, was actually reluctant. Like, we flew to Dallas and he wasn't sure he wanted to take me to this game. So eventually he's like, hey, get in the car, we'll go. And so on our drive there, the whole time I'm trying to convince him, like, I'm cool, I promise. Like, I'm not obnoxious. You know, if we win, we lose. I'm just, I'm just here for the experience. And the whole way I'm trying to convince him that, you know, while I am a Redskins fan, that I'm not terrible. But he was reluctant. After the short ride, we ended up parking. He, had, he was a season ticket holder, so he had the special parking. And as soon as I got out of the car, his friends were all parked around us. They started screaming at me. They started yelling at George, why did you bring this guy to the game? Started yelling at my friend Curtis. He's like, I don't know this guy. So they're just yelling at me. You know, and it wasn't, it wasn't terrible at first, but eventually we got into the stadium. And as we started to walk towards our seats, the, the, the closer and closer we got to the field, the louder and louder people got. Ten rows back. What is he doing here? Five rows back. You're wasting tickets on a Redskins fan. Eventually we settled three rows back from the 20-yard line, surrounded by Cowboys fans. Everywhere I went that day, it was clear that one of these things was not like the other. The entire game, every time I went to the bathroom, people were yelling at me. When I went to order food, I tried to buy food and the guy wouldn't take my money because I was a Redskins fan. He started pointing me in a different direction. I had to beg him to feed me that day. At one point, like third quarter, I was like, I'm super thirsty and I'm going to die if I don't get something to drink, but I'd rather just sit here instead of being harassed the whole walk up and the whole way back. They even started harassing my friends and George because everyone around them knew this guy and knew he was a Cowboys fan that brought a Redskins fan to the game. If the Cowboys scored, people yelled at me. If the Redskins scored, people yelled at me. It was incredibly clear the entire time that I was an outcast, that I didn't belong. Now, I'd be lying if I told you that the teasing and harassment didn't get old that day. Like, the Redskins ended up winning, which made it feel a little bit better. Uh, but I was relieved when I left because people finally stopped yelling at me. But the whole time I was there, I was labeled as an outcast. And the reality is this was just one Sunday of my life. The game ended, I got back in the car, later that night we flew home. But for a lot of you, you feel like you're an outcast every single day. Sometime in your life you've been labeled as different. Maybe by your family or your friends or coworkers or even by the church. And this isn't just for one day. This isn't just one Sunday afternoon. This is every day of your life. You feel like you're an outcast. Maybe it's because you have a past that embarrasses you. Maybe it's because you're going through a divorce. Maybe it's because your family just looks different. Today we're talking about how God is for the outcast. 
That if you feel like people label you a certain way, or you feel like the church has labeled you a certain way, that God doesn't label you that way, and that God is for you. God is for the outcast. Throughout the story of Jesus' life, one thing that is completely clear, that he is for people who have been labeled outcasts, people who have been pushed aside by society. And today we're going to focus in the book of Luke in the Bible. And so if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Luke. If you've got a smartphone, I would encourage you to download this app called YouVersion. It's incredible. But also we're going to have it up on the screen so you could read along. And we're going to look at a bunch of stories in Luke 4 through 8 before settling on one story. But Luke 4 through 8 is this really cool portion of the Bible. It's kind of like a clip show. If any of you are fans of Friends or How I Met Your Mother or even The Office, a clip show is when you're like eight seasons in and it seems like they're kind of out of material. And so they do like a bunch of flashbacks. That's a clip show. And so in Luke 4 through 8, Luke is kind of giving a clip show. Instead of telling one big story about Jesus, he tells nine stories about how Jesus is for people who have been pushed aside. These are stories about people who have been labeled unclean or sinners, or worthless, or poor. Before we read one of the stories, I want to go through some of these with you. In Luke 4, Jesus drives out an impure spirit, someone who had been labeled by society as insane. In Luke 5, Jesus heals a man with leprosy, someone who had been labeled unclean. Luke 5, again, Jesus heals a paralyzed man, someone who had been labeled useless. Luke 5, again, Jesus eats with sinners, people who had been labeled sinners. Luke 6, Jesus commends this guy named John the Baptist who people had labeled crazy. He was somebody who would eat locusts and lived in the desert and looked different and sounded different, preached about this God who was coming. So people thought he was crazy, and Jesus commends him in Luke 6, talking about his faith and how strong it is. In Luke 7, Jesus raises a widow's son, a woman who had been labeled worthless. In Luke 8, Jesus drives out more impure spirits, someone who had been labeled crazy. In Luke 8 again, Jesus heals a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, someone who had been labeled unclean. In Luke 7, we're going to jump back. There's actually this story about a woman who is labeled a sinful woman. Now, if you have your Bible open, if you're in the YouVersion app, you'll notice that in some parts of the Bible, there are headers before these stories. Now, this isn't something that was written in the original text of the Bible, which is in Greek. This is something that was added later, so people kind of knew where things were broken up. But in this label, at some point in time, when people were putting the Bible together, they decided that this story was called Jesus, Anoints, or Jesus Anointed by a Sinful Woman. And, and here's the story that Luke tells in Luke 7, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, a Pharisee is a religious leader. This is someone who uh, grew up in the church, someone who had church knowledge. They knew the Old Testament front and back. This is a religious leader. Really quickly, too, you read this, and it says Jesus reclined at the table. Every time I read that, I really think he's, like, reclining. I just picture Jesus kind of sitting back and getting ready for a good meal. Luke continues, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. Let's pause there for a second. So Luke is writing this. Luke is somebody who follows Jesus. And yet when he talks about this woman, he calls her a woman who lived a sinful life. What must have been done for this woman to be labeled a sinful woman? You know, the reality is Luke understood 
that everybody has sin. And sin is this idea, it's actually an archery term that means missing the mark. And Jesus tells us to live this life in the bullseye, and at some point she'd veered off. And the reality is, nobody's perfect here. Trust me, I know most of you. Nobody's perfect here. But for some reason, this imperfection and this sin had defined her. She was labeled as an outcast. How many of you feel like people approach you the same way? They know a little bit about your story. Maybe they just look at you. Maybe they know a little bit about your family or your goals or your dreams, and they look at you and they decide from the start that you're an outcast. Luke continues, talking about this woman. So she came to the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, alabaster is a type of jar that's incredibly expensive. In fact, you do a little bit of research, you find out that it probably took her a whole year's worth of wages to buy this jar. Now, if you took a year of your wages to buy one thing, how much would you cherish that thing? If you took everything you had and you bought one item, how much would you love that and protect that? In this story, we see that this woman took a year of her wages to buy this jar, to fill it with perfume, and she brought it to Jesus. Luke continues, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. The reality is this woman has no idea how Jesus is going to respond to her. She has no idea if as she approaches Jesus, as she tries to wash his feet, is Jesus going to look at her the same way everybody else does, as a sinful woman, as unclean, as an outcast, or is he going to accept what she's doing? I can imagine in that scenario she's terrified. And I also can imagine that a lot of you coming to church felt the same way. Does this church want me here? Does Jesus want me here? Am I an outcast? But going back to the stories that Luke told and back to this clip show of Jesus caring for these people that are labeled outcasts, what we know is that this woman most likely had heard stories of Jesus taking care of people who had been set aside. And so even though she didn't know Jesus, even though she didn't know how he was going to respond, she wanted to give it a shot. She wanted to approach him. She shows the ultimate sign of humility And she pours out the perfume and she washes his feet. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. What this religious person is saying, if Jesus was who he said he was, if he was the son of God and he did know who this person was, he wouldn't let her get around him. Again, he labels her as a sinner, as an outcast, and says if Jesus knew how much of an outcast she was, he wouldn't be there. But Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. This is a trap, by the way. (laughs) You read this story, and Jesus is trying to teach Simon, and he's completely unaware of what Jesus is about to teach him, and he walks right into it. And this is what Jesus says. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and another 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. 
Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love is shown, but, for, but whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. And the reality is, Jesus could have labeled her as a sinful woman. Jesus knew her past. Jesus knew her story. He could have been disgusted at the fact that this woman was washing his feet with her hair and her tears. He could have treated her like an outcast. He could have perpetuated that label that she had been given, but he loved her. Because of her faith and her love for Jesus, he forgave her. And the beautiful thing about this story is when Jesus does that, he changes that label. He changes it up and lets her know you're no longer an outcast, but you're forgiven. But here's one of the things I love about Jesus. He usually doesn't end there. He always tries to take things a step further, and that's exactly what he does here as he continues. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who, uh, who, is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In this moment, as the people saw this, Jesus is telling these other non-outcast people that her example should be followed. Because Jesus doesn't just want you to know that you aren't an outcast. He wants you to know that you're loved, that you're welcomed, that you matter, and that even though society looked at her as a sinful woman, the faith that she had to approach Jesus was commendable. I think in this story, Jesus teaches two incredibly valuable lessons about outcasts. And I think in this story, he talks to both the religious and the people who are far from God or the people who would say, I'm, I'm not religious. To the religious, which is this Pharisee and, and really this house full of religious people, which is essentially to the church, Jesus makes it clear that the people whose society labels as an outcast, that these are people that are valued and loved and should be given the same opportunity to be in God's presence as everybody else. Jesus makes it clear that sin shouldn't stop people from being able to stand before God. And the reality is the church should be the safest place for somebody who feels like an outcast. That's not the church's job to continue to force an identity on someone. Rather, it's the church's job to help them find a new one. To the person who's been labeled an outcast, whether it's from family or friends or strangers or even your own self, God is for you. God doesn't push you away or label you the same way that society does. God doesn't look at you and think, oh, there's the sinful woman, there's the sinful man. God doesn't label you a divorced mother struggling to take care of her family. God doesn't label you as a guy struggling with depression or anxiety. God doesn't label you as a college student who feels aimless or purposeless. God doesn't label you as an addict. God labels you as somebody who is made in his own image. 
once a month uh, on Mondays, I head down to a place called the Samaritan Woman in Baltimore uh, to teach the Bible to some women who live there. Now, the Samaritan Woman is a national Christian organization providing restorative care to survivors and bringing about an end to domestic human trafficking through awareness, prevention, and advocacy. And so somehow uh, a friend of mine who's been teaching there for a long time said, hey, you should, you should join with us. And so I head down there once a month to, to teach these women a little bit about the Bible. And actually about a month ago uh, when, when the topic came up, I was asked to talk about Luke 7 and 8, the stories that we had just read. This class has five women in it ranging in ages from 17 to 45 And all five of these women were victims of sex trafficking before the Samaritan woman stepped in. Most of these women have lost everything. Their family has abandoned them. Society has turned their back on them. And if you ask them to define who they are, they will tell you that they are outcasts. When I met them for the first time, that's one of the first things that they said to me was, we're not like everybody else. And so most of these girls have very little understanding of who Jesus is. And so when I teach, what we do is we actually read a few verses and then we just talk about it. In fact, this is a similar style to how we do our small groups during the week that we call collectives. We actually read it and talk about it because a lot of times when we read the Bible, we're not really sure what we're reading or we have questions or maybe it makes us angry or maybe we just want to know a little bit more. And so when I sat down with these women, what we did was we read Luke 7 through 8 and I said, hey, how do you feel about what you just read? After we finished reading the story about the woman with the alabaster jar, I asked them, hey, do you have any thoughts? Any questions about what you just read? And you could tell there was one girl who really didn't like the story. In fact, as we read it, you could tell she just got angrier and angrier. And so I waited a few seconds for someone to respond. I waited to see if anyone was gonna speak up. And finally, I asked her, I said, hey, what are, you, what are you thinking about this? You seem upset. You seem frustrated. Tell me your thoughts. And here's what she said. She said, if God is for this woman, why wasn't everyone else? She continued to talk, and she said, the reason why I struggle with God is because I am an outcast. If I tell people my whole story, they label me as a prostitute or a sex slave or a victim, she said, I don't, I don't want that to be who I am. She continues, said, I'm so afraid to decide to follow Jesus because I'm afraid that people will still think of me this way. She said, I'm so afraid that no matter what decision I make, I will always be an outcast. And as she talked through this, she continued and just said, I don't want people to look at me this way. I don't want people to see me this way. I don't want to be an outcast anymore. I'm going to be honest, uh, when, when she finished, I didn't really know what to say to her. Um, you know, the first thing I did was apologize for what she's gone through, but ultimately that at some point in her life, someone had told her that her past was now her identity, and that because of that past, she was no longer welcome. As we continue to talk, all I could do is point back to the story of the woman with the alabaster jar and talk about how Jesus forgave this woman's sin and removed that label of being an outcast. As we talked, I continued to let her know that this is what Jesus wants to do for you 
This is what Jesus wants to do for us. He doesn't want us to be labeled as an outcast. He doesn't want us to feel like an outcast. In fact, he wants to give us a new label, and that's being brand new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. God wants to remove the labels that have been given to us by our family and our friends or society or people who really just don't know us. He doesn't want us to think that we're an outcast. He doesn't want people to approach us that way. He wants us to be brand new, to be forgiven. This happens when you choose to follow Jesus. This happens when you choose to accept Jesus as the leader of your life. This is the result of choosing to follow him and being baptized and saying, God, I don't want this label anymore. I want the one that you've created for me. Last week, we talked about how new life is possible. It is a real thing. And I know you're skeptical, and I know some people here aren't sure about the whole Jesus thing. We're saying, hey, like, you can change your label forever, and I get it. I know you're nervous. I know that you have questions. I know you have doubts. Last week, we talked about the fact that new life is possible. And what's amazing is Sunday night, we got to celebrate that. On Sunday night, three of our team members decided that the label that they'd been given by society, the way society had pushed them out, the outcast label that they felt like they had, they wanted gone. And so on Sunday night, three of our team members were baptized at Lake Linganore. Let's check out this video. is Jesus wants you to have that new label. He wants you to know that you can be a part of his church. He wants you to know that he loves you and cares for you and that he's here for you. And he wants you to know that whatever society says, whatever your neighbors say, whatever your family says, that that doesn't have to be who you are, that you don't have to be an outcast anymore. And the reason why we celebrate baptism is because baptism is the death of your old self and the rebirth of a new self, a new label that is forgiven. Now, I don't know what you've done in your life where you've been labeled an outcast. I don't know what your past looks like. I don't know what it looks like right now. But we want you to know at Collective that God is for you that you're not an outcast to him, that he wants to make you brand new. And as a church, Collective is here to help you find that. We're not here to continue that label. We're not here to continue to treat you like an outcast. We're not here to push you aside, but to welcome you in as a part of this because that's what Jesus did to this woman with the alabaster jar. She didn't deserve it. She didn't have anything. Society looked at her as sinful, worthless, could bring nothing to the table, yet Jesus looked at her and said, you are forgiven and then used her as the example of what faith should look like. And that's what we want for you. We want you to experience that same freedom that she felt that day and the same freedom that our friends felt last week. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that the labels that people give us don't have to be who we are. 
that the labels that, that people give us when they don't know us, when they don't know our family, they don't know our past, they don't know where we're going, they don't know how hard we're trying, God, that those labels don't have to be what define us. God, ultimately, we don't have to be outcasts because you welcome us in. God, thank you that you want us to be new. God, I pray that this church and the people that are here today can experience that. but also show other people that it's real. God, thank you that you're for us. God, thank you that we get to read story after story after story about how you were for people who were pushed aside, forgotten, broken, hurt. God, we know that doesn't take away some of the pain we feel today. It doesn't take away some of the frustration we feel today. But God, knowing that you are for us makes it a little bit easier. We love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.